Hello everyone, and welcome to The Good Lawyer Show. I am your host, Matt Scrivens, and alongside me is Good Lawyer CEO and co-founder, Rhett Colvin. As the name of this podcast suggests, we typically cover issues that relate to the legal profession, including the future of law, legal technology, and issues facing our current model of delivering legal services. However, Good Lawyer is also a startup, and as such, we like to use this platform to connect with other entrepreneurs to discuss strategy and to share lessons and stories from what we have learned through our respective entrepreneurial experiences. So, joining us this week for part one of a two-part conversation is Andrew Brown. Andrew is an entrepreneur and currently the program director for the Calgary Innovation Coalition and in charge of corporate development for Thin Air Labs, an Alberta-based investment firm focused on supporting ventures in health, education, and video game development. Andrew has been a mainstay in the startup community for over a decade and was kind enough to come on the show and share many of the lessons he has learned, both from his personal experiences with his own startup, as well as the coaching he has done to help other entrepreneurs on their path. If you want a nitty gritty look at the essence of a startup, then this show is for you. Before getting to the show, we just need to cover some very quick housekeeping and let you know that we at Good Lawyer are offering free 15-minute legal advice sessions to you or your business. Simply visit our website at goodlawyer.ca and book your free legal advice session with one of our fantastic lawyers by entering the promo code GLSHOW. That's G as in good, L as in lawyer, SHOW in all capital letters. Alright, that is it for me. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, guys. Looking forward to this conversation. <laughs> yeah, you've been on our list for a while, so it's good to get you on. So, uh, so let's just start right there. Maybe just give our listeners a quick introduction of who you are and, uh, and just what you're working on these days. Absolutely. So I've been working uh, in the tech and innovation ecosystem in Calgary for the last six or seven years now. Previous to that, I was a graduate of Mount Royal University in their entrepreneurship program. Uh, right as they were kind of transitioning the curriculum from small business management to kind of lean startup strategy. And through that, uh, or while I was going through school, it was actually when I met Brett, uh, we were building painting franchises together uh, for University First Class Painters. And so I kind of got that, uh, that real world experience in the business environment while I was kind of taking what I was learning in school and, and actually applying it. And yeah, like going through business school, wasn't sure what I was going to do, but came across the entrepreneurship program at Mount Royal and uh, never really looked back. It was just exactly uh, what I wanted to do and, and uh, supported the impact that I wanted to have on, on uh, the world around me. And so I learned a lot through that process, built up a, a pretty good business over the course of a couple of years through, uh, through the summers in, in school and paid my way through school that way. And then as I was graduating, I was connected with uh, the director of the Institute's uh, at Mount Royal for Entrepreneurship and Innovation, a guy named uh, Ray DePaul. And Ray was at the time on the board of Startup Calgary. He recruited me to take on a part-time uh, role as the development director for Startup Calgary and uh, did that for about a year and a half. Worked for a small development studio, software development studio here in Calgary called Pump Interactive. We built custom software and just kind of sucked my teeth into how do you actually build meaningful software. You can build software for anything. If it doesn't solve a business problem, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> so we learned a lot about, uh, about really how to take kind of business problems and, and turn them into uh, solutions that technology can solve. Uh, and, uh, and that was fit. 
Yeah, find, yeah, really finding product market fit and doing a lot of validation up front um, to really understand what it is that you need this software or, or technology to do for us, for, for our customers, but was really trying to uh, apply some of that knowledge to some of my own ideas. And, and so while I was working for Pump, I uh, was also working or just starting to work on my own startup, which was a company called uh, TicTex. And it was uh, really trying to solve some of the problems that a lot of us have experienced with buying tickets for live events. Um, specifically buying them online from random people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we didn't know anything about the industry at the time. So we just kind of said, hey, like, you know, we got this problem as, as sports fans and concert fans. And uh, this is really weird. I don't understand why this works this way. Um, like, like good entrepreneurs and just started uh, kind of tinkering and, and building technology. Mm-hmm. And, okay, I'm gonna uh, have to. I gotta. I gotta step in here because we're gonna hold off the tick ticks for a second because we're gonna well, dive we're going deep for a deep dive. Yeah, we're okay, deep okay. dive it on the tick ticks. So yeah. let's just pause and. Sorry, Matt. Go ahead. Can you just quickly touch on your experience at Mount Royal? Like, would you recommend it to someone else who is interested in entrepreneurship? Yeah, I mean, for me, it changed my life. Right, like it changed my whole trajectory of my career and and what I thought I wanted to do. Um, right. So starting at Mount Royal, it was, you know, taking a business degree. A lot of it was really dry in the first couple of years. Totally. Uh, so for me, it was like, I was kind of taking this business degree, didn't know what I wanted to do, uh, took some time off and did some traveling, came back. And I think the first, one of the first classes I took was uh, something about the impact of entrepreneurship. And it was basically this, this class that uh, really focused on like, what does the world look like to you in 50 years? And why does it look that way? And right. is there ways that we can use business <laughs> to change that? Like as soon as I took that, I was like, this is exactly, exactly what I wanted to do. So in terms of like impact on, on my life and trajectory in my career, it was, it was huge. Right. Um, it, I think what it really did was kind of open my eyes to the type of impact that you could have by building really meaningful businesses, right? right. And uh, businesses that were based on kind of the values and the reflection of, <laughs> of who you were right. and just stamping your DNA all over it. Right. And, and that was um, something that I was kind of learning, like, you know, running a painting franchise was really practical application of that knowledge. It was like, right. how do you, you know, what's break even, what's cash flow? How right. do you read income statements? How do you market? Exactly. Like all of those kind of things that you do need to sink your teeth into. Uh, but it, to me, it was a little bit more like applied knowledge and uh, called outsourcing. Was, yeah, yeah. Delegate everything. <laughs> Come up with processes and delegate. You right? figured out Brett's secrets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Delegate really everything. Part, everything. Yeah, I can't do anything. I, I mean, in the first in the first year, and and that's what the interesting thing over time with that type of business is that the first year you just kind of jump in and do everything, right? And right. you you just do it because you have to, and and you don't have any experience kind of managing your your time that way. <laughs> totally and hiring and trusting people to, to complete that, that work. So it was kind of this experience that, that you just, you just jump into. And then all of a sudden you're like, this is really hard. Right. And it's hard for a lot of reasons, but primarily it's hard because like, you just don't know where to spend your time and you're just jumping all over the place doing everything. Going into the second year, I think not, not oh, you're talking about the painting business at the, at yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The painting business. And um, going into the second year, you kind of have your feet underneath you. You have an idea of how this works and how much time you have to put into early on to kind of fill up your pipeline right. um, and start producing right away, generating cash flow right away. And it just really helps you kind of understand that this is a, a momentum thing, right? Like you have to invest early, you have to get the ball rolling. And there's a period of time where right. you're not going to generate enough revenue, if any, to uh, break even. And, uh, <laughs> and as the boss or the owner, you're the first one to take a pay cut, right? You got to pay everyone else first. And and so that whole experience of just like really understanding what it meant to be a business owner or an entrepreneur was a super valuable experience, especially going through the entrepreneurship program at Mount Royal. 
where it was, uh, you know, more about how do you go through bad ideas and iterations of a business model to get to one that's actually going to work, that's actually scalable. And so it was like, how do you, how do you kind of bring that in as a mindset into the way you operate a business? So everything that you do is kind of like, let's test that first. Let's iterate on it. Let's learn. And then let's come up with a better solution as like over time, as we go, you feel like an imposter along the way, right? Like it's like, I'm still figuring this out too. I don't know how this works, you know, but what I do know is that being an entrepreneur, you got to be comfortable in that position. You have to be, you really have to embrace the fact that you're learning every single day um, and be okay with that. Right. A lot of, a lot of people struggle with that because they feel like they need to know all the answers. And it took me a while to figure out that like, you don't need to know all the answers, but you do need to be able to think critically about um, what it is that you don't know that you have to figure out and what you can bring other people in to do to free up time to be able to do that for yourself and really and change Brett, your mindset to like working on the business instead of in it. Right. Yeah. Good point. And Brett, you have uh, you have some experience in this painting industry as well. <sighs> we're way past that now, Matt. Come on, man. Eight questions to ask Andrew, Jump but in. I, I, your turn. but I gotta, I gotta just sit on, on this learning idea. Cause sure. I really liked how you put that. I was thinking about it in the context of painting versus running a startup. And I think there needs to be a certain willingness to learn absolutely with running any business, but it's vastly like, it's so much more extreme with startup. And I think to be a successful startup founder, and I was just thinking about this as you were talking, you really have to have this insane desire to continuously learn. Cause that is, that is quite literally what we're doing every single day. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I mean in the tech world or the startup world where everything moves just 10 times faster, it's, it's extreme, right? Like you deal with it on another level than kind of a, a brick and mortar or, or service-based business where you can kind of control your, your own growth. Um, where a startup, the idea is that you actually build a product and a company that just explodes and you can't manage that growth. Like it, it, that's the whole goal, right? Finding product market fit and all of a sudden you're scaling so fast that you can't keep up. And, and to get there, there's just so much grinding that goes into kind of like this iterative process. Like if I were to think back and there's so many things you would do differently, which is why it's really important to kind of ha- have that stick to this. Like you need to be able to accept the fact that you're going to make mistakes, accept the fact that you don't know everything, ask for help when you, when you need it or you're not sure. And that's really hard for a lot of people, right? Like it's, and it's still hard for me in certain, certain scenarios, but um, anytime that I come across those, those hurdles, I'm like, you got to take a breath, be humble, but be confident in the fact that uh, you can still move past this. You just might have to take a different tactic. Well, yeah. And every, like everything you just said there to me comes back to again learning like that just unfettered desire to continue learning every day. And there's definitely an unusual personality, I think, that can really just enjoy that every day because <laughs> it's, you know, it can be exhausting and stressful. Yeah. Absolutely. But, you know, from, from my perspective, it's fun. Like I just, yeah. I love it. I There's think, nothing else I'd rather be doing right now. And my bank account hasn't seen a paycheck <laughs> in, in far too long, you know? So like, you know, my life's kind of like playing a, a real life video game and I couldn't imagine doing anything else right now. I, I don't think that there's any one personality type that mm-hmm. um, defines an entrepreneur. I think that it's, it's learned over time and people do it differently. And that's, totally. that's what's so great about it is that there's yeah. no right way to do it. It's, uh, you know, there's best practice, there's things that other people have done that you can learn from, but it's, it's really up to you to kind of figure out how to navigate and, and uh, how to take the next step. Well, um, and, you know, I think it's, I think it comes back to team 
And I think you need to be able to identify your weaknesses and flesh out your team with people that can supplement, you know, the, the original founders, because from my perspective, you know, successful startups need the same pieces of the recipe. You know, you need some good tech, you need a sales channel, you, you need the same pieces of the recipe, but who contributes those pieces does, it doesn't matter as long as you can piece it together. Yeah. I mean, to me, startups, business, they're, they're team sports, right? Like they, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I get a lot of mm-hmm. those questions like, can I be a solo entrepreneur? And I'm like, you could, it's going to yeah. be a lot harder. It's probably not going to be as enjoyable. You know, you really have to surround yourself with the right people. And like, you know, I think that we actually did that uh, fairly well. in, in most, most of my business, I, I think it was more just like understanding how important that is. So, uh, so before, before you dive into that, uh, which I want to get to, and actually that's a, an imp- incredible thread, but maybe, uh, maybe just give our listeners uh, a brief introduction of TickTix because this was obviously a, a major endeavor on your part and one that was, uh, had a lot of true potential. Uh, you were able to raise quite a bit of money. So maybe just give us a brief overview of what, what made you start that company and what, what problem were you trying to solve and give us a bit of the story. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the early days kind of led me into that, right? Like there is this, uh, I was helping all these other entrepreneurs start their businesses. I wanted to play, you don't learn until you just jump into that. And so, you know, I kind of started exploring ideas and um, I didn't really know how to validate if they were good or not. I didn't know how to go through this iterative process. Like I knew the theory of it and, and some of the practices of it, but like you really don't understand it until you go through it. It's so hard. So many, so many years to figure out like the best way to kind of do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, like a lot of that learning comes like over time. Right. So then by the end of the, the line for us, we were firing on all cylinders. We had, we had a great team. We had all this great stuff. Right. But to rewind to where that started, um, I was just networking myself all around the ecosystem. I was connecting with lots of great people. Um, one of which, one of those people ended up being my co-founder in TikTok. And uh, we kind of connected and, and bonded over our love for sports, right? And live live events. And uh, and he was a longtime season ticket holder for the Flames. So he was kind of explaining to me this problem of like buying 41 games worth of tickets every sure. year and always struggling to figure out, to, to sell off the ones that he couldn't use. And so we kind of explained this problem. And I said, that's interesting. How are you solving that? And he said, I had a Facebook group that was like 300 or 400 people in the group at the time. And sure enough, I, I go into the group and people are transacting every day, right? Like there's all sorts of activity going on. And we came to realize that like the fees on secondary sites were super high. Right. There was still no guarantee that the tickets were actually good. So you could still buy tickets that um, might be duplicates on, on secondary sites. And so people were like, yeah, I don't want to use this. And if I'm a local fan, I just want to sell the people that I know. And, and I want to sell to like Flames fans, people that I, I kind of align with. And um, so I said, that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, let's see if we can scale this, this group. And if we can, then let's consider building technology over it. So we kind of took the first step really well. We're like, mm. before we just jump in and build yeah. anything, let's figure right. out like what the real demand here is. Yeah. And, uh, and Johnny, who's my co-founder, um, the hustler that he was, was like, okay, I'm going to prove, I'm going to prove that there's a demand here. And, uh, he opened up this group and it went from like three or 400 people to like three or 4,000 within a couple oh, of weeks. Wow. Really every step of the way, that we kind of learned more about the industry. We just learned how broken it was. Basically there's this kind of like, you know, Ticketmaster, um, Live Nation, Live Nation being the promoter, Ticketmaster being the ticketing agent, um, Monopoly. Are, are those on, the same company? They're the same company. Yeah, they're, they're the yeah, same yeah. company. So back in 2010, uh, Live Nation, biggest promoter in the world. So they had, you know, access to the, to the best talent in the world, bought Ticketmaster as a ticket vendor. And when that happened, there was all sorts of kind of, um, 
pushback saying like, you know, you can't, this vertical integration, you can't control the whole market because yeah. if you do, then you have to say, well, if you don't use Ticketmaster, you don't get the best acts at your venues. And so they, you know, weren't allowed to do that. There was all sorts of clauses in that, in that acquisition that said you couldn't do that, but that's yeah, there's more or less antitrust concerns, on. right? Like that's total monopoly. Yeah. And, and they, you know, to their credit did, we're very strategic with this saying like, you know, we are going to allow for a secondary um, resale market to exist because um, it basically means that there's all sorts of other activity going on that we're not, not in control of. But as that developed, they started building their own technologies to allow for reselling of their own, of their own tickets. Right. And uh, charging fees every, every transaction. And so we looked at this and we were just like, you know, this is a huge, a huge problem, way bigger than we thought it was. This is not a localized thing that, that we're just serving the Calgary market on. This is a problem that, that every major venue um, around the world has. And so you have this really weird market and we were just fascinated by it. I mean, that's really what, what kept us going was just this desire to solve these crazy complex problems in the industry. Right. So, so I have a question then. So when, once you figured all this out and you realize the players in this, I mean, you're going up against uh, like Ticketmaster and Live Nation, right? Uh, did that intimidate you? Did that, did that get you fired up? What was your reaction once you kind of got the four corners of the industry? And then, you know, you're a guy from Calgary. Was that empowering or was that scary or was it a bit of both? I think at first it was uh, empowering and uh, it took us a little while to really understand like the complexity of the industry. And I think it probably took us too long because we were just, we were just driven to solve this problem. Right. And just right. trying to understand like, why is this so hard to solve? Uh, anyways, we were naive entrepreneurs. Like we were just like, let's just, let's just do this. Let's build technology that we know can solve these problems and let's see what happens. And we, uh, so we built our first product. It was an app. Um, where we actually validated the legitimacy of tickets before we sold them, which was good. Um, consumers loved it, but it was really hard to scale because we were actually doing like a lot of those checks manually. Um, and the other problem with the marketplace, as, as you guys might know, a good lawyer is that you have to focus on both sides of the market, right? You need inventory and supply before you can actually serve demand. Um, and so we realized that like the model that we had built originally, which was like fan to fan ticketing, which was a, a great application of like, smart contracts and blockchain tech didn't work because it didn't, it didn't matter. Basically artists were like, well, if I want to play at the saddle dome, for instance, I have to use Ticketmaster. Mm -hmm. I want to play at this venue. I have to use that. We're like, well, why do you have to use that? They're like, well, that's their contracted ticket partner. We said, well, why don't we go to them and say, we have a better technology that can solve these problems for you and see what they say. And all of those venues came back and said, well, you know, Ticketmaster paid us a bunch of money up front yeah. and uh, that's how they, that's how they compete. Right. And so it was mm -hmm. really hard to tap into like totally getting a ticketing system to a like 20,000 person stadium, really hard to compete at that level. So we kind of just continued to explore. We looked at smaller venue sizes, mm -hmm. but the problem with smaller venues for us was that they, they didn't really have the same problems that, um, that larger venues did where it was, you had to sell out 20,000 seats or you had to sell out a certain number, which kind of forced this, this market dynamic where it was like, just sell all the tickets now and don't worry about what you leave on the table later. Um, so a little bit of different segment and, and just not really well positioned to what we were trying to solve. Mm -hmm. And so we were kind of exploring this as we got the marketplace out the door, we, we built it up. We, you know, did some good things with it. It was, it was neat. We didn't really make a lot of money because our business model was a little skewed. We dealt with our, our are all kinds of problems like credit card fraud and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so that was a problem we dealt with. But as we were going through that process, we we're like, you know, the marketplace, we can't just build our tech into our own marketplaces. We're not the issuers of the tickets. So right. then we we're like, 
well, maybe we build a technology that we can integrate into other services like Ticketmaster and they can, they can actually become one of our customers and built some cool stuff, pitched it to Ticketmaster. They kind of looked at it. They said, yeah, we like it. We know what you're doing. Not interested at the time. They ended up buying a competitor of ours that was doing something very similar that was a little bit further along in the development of the tech. And so we learned a hard lesson that way. It was like, if that's your strategy to to basically build something for a Goliath like like Ticketmaster, then you have to work really closely with them to make sure that yeah. when the time is right, they'll acquire you or they become that that customer quickly and you're working kind of alongside them in, in that. But there's also risk in that as a startup where it's like you're kind of containing your growth, right? Like um, if you sign exclusivity contracts with like the one whale, then that's kind of capped your, your, the size that you can grow. And so, you know, all sorts of lessons through that process. What we ultimately came to was uh, we had some interest from some um, kind of like second and third tier ticket companies that we wanted to sell the technology into, but they were mostly overseas. Yeah, and you're running low on dough at this point too, right? We were running low on money the whole time, right? Like this is the, <laughs> the nine lives of startups, right? It's like, you know, every step of the way, or there's no a chance one likes that you might not... About. I feel flush. What are you talking about? I feel pretty flush right now. <laughs> so that runs out quick. I'm frugal. I'm so frugal. <laughs> you're, you're very good. You're, you're a good fiduciary of the company but funds. I appreciate that, Matt. But but Andrew, honestly, and we've had you know conversations in the past that have led me to feel even more bullish about Good Lawyer because a lot of the key hurdles, because you guys had a great brand, you could go out there and get clients. It was more some of this like foundational primarily there being the you know the big goliath in the room that wouldn't let you play ball and you know the even the issue of the supply and demand which is you can overcome but it's challenging in the ticket peer-to-peer sort Mm -hmm. of framework whereas with lawyers it's insanely fragmented the biggest law firm in canada holds just over like one percent of the market so there's no big goliath that you know has like the keys to the kingdom so to speak and lawyers have almost infinite supply yeah. Like it's so if you can unlock it, right? Like um there's different risks. I think what we underestimated was like the the different hurdles with different sectors, right? Like had I started another business um at that time, had I known what I known, I wouldn't have gone after this industry. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um because it was just it was just too difficult to kind of crack that. And people have tried before and we were just naive and but it's like this um you know, I think the naive naivety is good up until a certain extent, but you really have to be smart with your your strategic um, kind of roadmap. It's like, well, how do we knock these things down as we go? Um, and, and we were doing some like validation and some testing, but we weren't really doing we weren't really doing it the right way. Like we were kind of accepting it at face value, right? So we get mm. people say like, "This is really cool," and we're like, right. "Validation." Yeah. Like, no, no, so no. I think that's a point that's actually worth highlighting is that even if it is a good idea, which your business undeniably was to create a successful business takes more than just even, even a problem or a pain point. It, it requires more. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mentor or I coach this to entrepreneurs all the time, just because it's a good idea. does not mean it's a sustainable business. Right. Um, and so like, those are two different things. Like the first thing that you want to start with is like, if I solve this problem for this one customer, then I can find problem solution fit as in someone is willing to pay for a solution for me to solve that problem for them. But then there's this, the next step, which is like product market fit. Can I actually build a product that can serve lots of customers to solve the same problem in a scalable way? And that that's what everyone's searching for. But even then, had you not done the research up front, you might realize that the market's just not big enough for what you're trying to build, right? Like 
there's not enough customers to basically allow you to scale to the point that you are an attractive uh, acquisition or you can actually generate enough cash flow for yourself to keep continue to grow. Like that's, that's a whole nother. And those are like the different stages of risk, right? The earliest stage of risk is like, can you, can you actually solve a problem for someone that people can pay for? Can you build a team that can build a product to solve that problem at scale? And then the next stage of risk is like, can you actually scale it to the point right. that it's attractive as an acquisition or it becomes a sustainable business model? Yeah, can, can you execute? Um, yeah. And then basically, um, can you source the funding to, to do that in a sustainable way? Like how much do customers cost to acquire versus right. what the lifetime value is? And if the lifetime value of a customer, and there's, there's so many nuances here, right? Yeah. If the lifetime value of the customer takes 10 years to, to actually acquire, yeah. then it's like, well, think about how much money you're going to need to basically sustain yourself for 10 years right. before your earliest customers start paying themselves off, right? right. And so um, all of those kind of nuances in like that, that business model or like the intricacies are really hard when you're new because you just don't see them. Right. Um, but I think that the benefit of being like a second time founder or going through that process at least once is that you, you're aware, right. And you can make decisions based on that, that previous knowledge. So it's You've been uh, to battle, it's a battle. Right. And, and so the first one is, and this is like the joke that, that we always talk about afterwards is like, well, no wonder people want to invest in second time founders because we made uh, every mistake in the book. Um, right. we raised money in probably the worst way possible, just like a rolling note that we continue to raise on for, for a long time, which meant that we never really had like a close that allowed us to say, we're going to close this amount and then we're going to test this part of the business. And if we get to the end of the road of money um, and it doesn't work, then we haven't, you know, wasted the rest of it. When you have rolling um, investment coming in, it's just like, you just basically are trying to survive another day. Right. And uh, you're not really focusing on the right things to move the business forward. It was obvious after about six months of kind of like the pain and, and kind of recovery from going through that process and it not working out before, you know, I really realized how, how much knowledge I actually acquired through that process. That's awesome. Um, we yeah, actually took me another to, six months to figure out, like, do I actually want to do that again? Right. Yeah, you well, had to digest it for a little I, bit. And actually, so do you actually, let's just jump on that right now. Would you, you obviously still have the bug. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> look at I, him. Uh, look at him. I know. Like, you're you're, jumping, the way you're yeah. talking about this. It's pretty evident you're quite, uh, quite passionate. Uh, I'm, you know, but, but still um, more skeptical, right? Like not, not in a bad way, I don't think, but in a way that's like, you know, thinking through the problems that you're going to face and thinking through right. how you might overcome them like earlier. And so I think, you know, a couple of things there, I would start, I, I would do the business differently. Like I would start um, in a different order, um, really drill down to like the um, customer validation and discovery process. Like really understand what problem is it that we're trying to solve? How big of a problem is it for these people? What's that worth in terms of uh, dollars? And can we actually build something that would solve that for them at, at scale? The scale part is something that people are like, yeah, I'll build a technology to scale, but they don't even think about like the, the scale of the market itself. It's like, are you able, so, so even if you build like a highly scalable technology and it's like this rocket ship, right? That's just going to support millions of users. Um, and I see this mistake all the time. It's like, well, yeah, we built this thing to scale. It's like, well, how many customers do you have right now? Well, none. It's like, well, why did you build it to scale then? It's like, you got to figure out if you can serve right. one customer first. And then you can say, okay, well, now that we have one, can we get to 10? And now that we have 10, can we get to 100, right? And every step of the way, there might be like a rebuild that you have to do to support that type of growth. But, but it's not worth doing that rebuild if you 
can't prove to yourself and your team that you can actually like acquire that many customers for a price point that makes sense for your business. Totally. We're rolling subscriptions out with a spreadsheet. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's how it should be done, right? It's like, it's like nail it first, scale it later. It, it just saves so much time, heartache, money that you've invested. Um, and so, you know, I get a lot of entrepreneurs I work with that sometimes I sit down and I'm like, oh, okay, tell me about this. Oh, we've invested 150,000. We've built this great piece of technology. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. How many customers do you have? Oh, none yet. Okay, that's fine. How many customers have you talked to? Oh, we haven't really talked to anyone yet. Yeah. So, well, how do you even know? Like, how do you, how do you know if it's worth, if it's right. worth spending that money to build something for them then, right? Like that's the first step I would do. And I would do it in a much more um, logical and thought out way yeah, just, it, just because it's like, it's so risky right. to start something that you can build to that scale. But the way to counter that is to de-risk it every step of the way. And that's, that's a really hard part about this too, right? Where it's hard to find people to talk to about these problems that you're dealing with because you're like, especially as a first time founder, you don't know if they're normal. You don't know if you're supposed to be feeling that way. Right. You don't know if you're supposed to be this stressed and you're trying to figure out why you're that stressed. And then you start talking to other founders and you're like, Oh, this is normal. This is part of the process. <laughs> but, this is, but like a hundred percent, I couldn't agree more with you about like, that's how it is. But for me, and this is honestly how I've pretty much approached my entire life, but it's definitely getting applied in the startup context, expedited learning. Yeah. Sure. That is, that is literally my goal every day is expedited learning. And you know, the quicker you can learn, the more successful your business is going to be before, you know, that beautiful runway runs out. And for me personally, and this is, you know, I'm a major extrovert, so I love to, to talk to people and, and learn from people. Um, that's what I do. I find someone that's smarter than me and I yeah. try to talk to them as much as possible. And you've definitely <laughs> been on my hit list many times, Andrew Brown. So, and this will probably uh, be the transition into kind of the, the second part of, of your career so far, but kind of the money part is where I want to go. And so you were able to raise half a million dollars for Tick Ticks, if I if I uh, understand correctly, or or something in that range. Or I, I actually I actually think we're close to eight hundred thousand. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. so how? Like I, I know that yeah. that's going to be a a question that so many people are going to have <laughs> listening to this. Is how did you go about doing that? I, I mean. When we first started, we we didn't know how to do it either. So, like this is a this is a funny story actually. So we um we kind of set out. We put a little bit of money in ourselves as co-founders to build the first product. Uh, we launched it to that Facebook group that we created, and and actually had uh, some pretty good early traction. People were using it, and uh, I remember when we launched that product, it was like we did like three or four thousand dollars in a day, and we're like, and, and it was right as the, um, the playoffs were approaching with the flames being in the playoffs. And we're like, this is awesome. Like right. we got this figured out. There's no way this is going to fail. And, uh, I remember those so, days. I was so jealous. I'm yeah, working as a corporate lawyer. I'm just like, <laughs> Oh, I want to blow my brains out. And I just see Andrew Brown tick ticking away. And we, uh, so we, we kind of did like, we built that and then, um, the flames lost in the first round and it was a sad story. We were only, and so, but that gave us a chance to kind of think, okay, we need to build an Android version of the product. It was iOS only at the time. Um, you know, we didn't know anything about building like technology at that scale. And, and, you know, we didn't, we didn't have a co-founder that was technically, um, inclined. So we actually mm-hmm. went out and sourced someone uh, who was Brendan and he joined the team as a technical co-founder, brought him on. He built out a lot of the first version of the product and we launched it the next season. And I can't remember exactly when it was, but um, somewhere along the way, one of our, one of the like super users of the first versions of the product um, reached out to us and said, Hey, this is really cool. Are you guys raising money? 
and uh, we just, yeah, of course we are. Um, but it's, you know, so we, we said, yeah, like, you know, there's enough validation for us. We're going to take the next step. We're going to need some money to do that. I think at the time we were applying for a grant uh, that we needed to match or have some kind of contribution ourselves on. And so we, we met with him and, uh, and he ended up writing our first $25,000 check into the company. And I remember just like, like we kind of had this conversation we're like sure he's like i'm in we're like we don't even know how to how to accept the money like and so i think we had some legal support at the time and we reached out and said hey like someone offered to invest in our company and uh we need to know how and they wrote out a term sheet for us and we took that to him we didn't know any better it actually was good we had really good legal support at the time that helped us with that shameless plug for every startup founder listening if you're in andrew's position down the road you come to good lawyer and you check it out that's right. Yeah. Had I had I had a resource like that? Absolutely. Right. Because like we didn't know what we didn't know. Um, but then we did like after accepting that first check, we did like this whole crash course on on raising money for startups and convertible notes and all these terms that we didn't know. And, you know, what the best way to do that is. And, and through that process, we realized that we did not shoot ourselves in the foot with that first check. And it was actually a pretty reasonable uh, investment at a, at a decent valuation for both sides. Obviously, what like, the valuation was, Andrew? It was like $2 million capped convertible or something. Oh, wow. That's pretty good. Yeah. So, but it's, it was one of those things that we were like, you know, let's just bring the first check in. And, and again, we didn't really have a plan of like how much we needed to raise and for what, right. I remember an early conversation afterwards with a friend's uh, dad was like, okay, what are you raising? What's the use of proceeds? I had not even heard what use of like use of proceeds. I didn't even know what really what he was talking about. And uh, that kind of forced us to learn, right? And so we, we did embrace this idea of like, we're gonna have to learn this as we go. And so as we started looking at that, we said, okay, what are we really trying to do? How much do we need to raise to get to the next stage? And um, I think maybe we had a bit of a plan, but uh, we completely underestimated how fast we were gonna be able to scale and get to a point where the marketplace product was actually gonna be able to, to support us as a team. Um, so we were really scrappy. Like we brought in some money, we kept some of that in the bank, we built a new version of the product. Um, which actually sucked it, it tanked. We had to rebuild the whole thing afterwards. Wow. And so there's this whole process of like, you know, had I gone back and done it again, this is uh, ho- hopefully valuable to some of the listeners. It's like really understand like what your plan is, like how much money do you need right now to validate the riskiest assumptions you're making right now? Right. right? And how much time is that going to take you? Because the more, the more fluent you can be with your communication about that, the easier it's going to be to ask for more money later when you have either achieved your goals or you didn't for some particular reason, but you can explain and rationalize, right? And so, you know, I would have gone back and said, okay, this is cool. We have some good traction. There's definitely something here. What do we need? How much money do we need to build this product or this feature uh, roadmap? And what is that going to prove to us and to our potentially our investors if we need to raise more money afterwards and then just set out and do it like raise the money, close it, get to work. Right. Instead of having this high continuous intake of, of more funding where it's like, yeah, we got enough to pay ourselves for the next three or four months. Um, I don't think I was paying myself. Uh, we, we had some staff at the time that we were paying really like the startup uh, budget for me for like five years or something. And for the last two years, I don't think I took any money from the company. Um, so like really grind. Right. And then like going through that process as an entrepreneur, and uh, just under, like really feeling the heaviness of the situation of going through that and, and feeling, you know, I think I was in a unique position where I was also kind of uh, heading up like community development initiatives for the ecosystem here. So I was kind of in this weird position where it was like, 
I was kind of going out and talking to entrepreneurs on one side and like telling them, you know, the good word and this is how you do it and blah, 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 blah. And the other side, I was like trying to do it myself and struggling a lot and not really understanding how, how to do this. Right. And so I felt a huge amount of like imposter syndrome and just trying to figure out like, how do we make this work? But every step of the way, and this was a bit of a lesson in like, take lots of advice, but only use some of it. Right. Because we were getting all of this advice that was like, you guys are doing great. This is part of the thing. And we were like, internally feeling like none of this is working. This is just a disaster and we're not figuring this out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we built a piece of technology that, that just wasn't going to support what we wanted to do. We changed our minds a million times along the way. We were working with an agency, which yeah. is uh, a really hard uh, position for a startup to be in when you need to be agile and you need to change directions and, and all that. And so, you know, first of all, we did, didn't have a good enough understanding of what we were trying to build. Um, when we started building it, we had to kind of force it through to a finish line at some point and then eventually um, internalize all of that ourselves. And that's, and that's kind of how we did at least the first tranche of funding. We raised, I think, close to $350,000 over the course of like two, two and a half years, maybe. Um, and you didn't take a salary from any of that. I think at one point, well, actually when we first raised like the first tranche, like 150 yeah. grand, we were like, we made it. Yeah. Startup founders. <laughs> we're on salary. We're on payroll now. And we paid ourselves, uh, like it wasn't a huge amount. It was like 3,500 bucks a month, but it was too much, right? Like right. we still hadn't proven enough. Um, you know, there's, there's this inevitable point that you come to where like you are spending your time on whatever is paying the bills for you. And then you have to make this jump into the startup full time. And so we kind of took that as like, it's time to jump in full time. And especially at the time as like first time founders, I wish we would have just said, let's just keep doing it this way and keep money in the bank for as long as possible um, to figure out how this is going to work and like whether it's actually valid or not. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And had we done that, we, you know, there's all sorts of ifs that, uh, that we could explore, but like, you know, we, we at least would have kept money in the bank for, to, to continue to validate it. And we didn't need to jump in full time. There's a lot of times that, you're kind of working on this and there's not enough work for you to do, but you feel like you need to do everything. So you're kind of like just toying this, like, you know, sometimes time is this unspoken variable that people forget about. Sometimes things just need take time to materialize and to get the data that you need to make the next decision. And uh, working full time on, on that is not always necessary, right? Like it's okay to do it off the side of your desk to get it to a certain point of validation before you then mm-hmm. say, we, we can now raise a million dollars and part of that use of proceeds is going to be to pay ourselves for the next year, knowing that we're going to have to raise more money later or whatever it is. Right. Really stressful time. But that's, that's part of, part of the grind. That's part of the journey that Brett's talking about. It's like, of course you, you have to, you have to embrace that and you have to be okay with that, but you also have to be aware of your own mental stability, right? Like there's another factor or variable that people underestimate is like, you can have all the money in the world, you can have time, but you might not have mental capacity to keep going on something. And if you burn yourself out, you're just going to drag your feet for, for too long. You're no use to yourself or, or the rest of your company or your team. Um, you can fake it for a while, but it's just not sustainable. Yeah, so you I really mean- have to take care of yourself on that front. Thanks again to Andrew for being on the show. And please join us next week for part two of our discussion. If you like what you heard today, please rate, download, and subscribe. Until next time, we hope you have a great week.